Happy New Year, friends. Let's go to Revelation chapter 13. And while you go to Revelation 13, um, for those of you who are maybe not familiar with a liturgical calendar, um, it's the baptism of the Lord today. This is where a lot of churches celebrate the baptism of Jesus. And um, because of that, uh, that's going to sort of tie into what we're doing in Revelation tonight. So I wanted to read... Jesus' baptism, real briefly, and then we'll pray and start Revelation. Matthew 3, verse 16 says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Lord, I pray that this evening you would cause the reality of the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to be realized in our hearts and in every space that we go to from here, at home, in relationships, around the world. That, Lord, your spirit would descend upon us, and we would hear your voice declaring to us that we're your children, cherished, loved. And so, Lord, I pray that tonight there would be a raising up out of the waters that you would bring a real conversion and change in our lives as we leave the shores of 2016 and cross over to the shores of 2017, that we would see your spirits filling and empowering and influencing work in our lives and through our lives into this new territory. Thank you for being the God of the past, the future, and the present, and help us to hear your voice here tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Revelation 13. We are recovering 13. That's what we did a few weeks ago before the end of the year. And um, because after we talked about the Antichrist and who this guy is going to be in this book of Revelation, we um, I had a lot of people mention their uh, insights and things that they had read about the unholy trinity, the devil's trinity. It's mentioned here in Revelation 13. And yes, I knew about it. I um, So therefore, want to say, you know what? Let's start the new year off with a low minor note about evil and unholiness and the devil's trinity and just emphasize the devil so that we can... No, <laughs> but we're going to um, look at the devil's trinity and then compare that with the trinity, the real trinity, the holy trinity. Uh, if this fits in with the baptism of Jesus, because at his baptism, you have the sun emerging out of the waters. You have the Holy Spirit descending upon him and the father declaring who he is. And so this will work out nicely in our passage for, you may remember The dragon has just been kicked out of heaven in Revelation, in chapter 12. He was kicked out of heaven. The dragon is Satan in this book. 
and he is furious. He could not get Christ at his birth. So he goes up into heaven, launches a war, gets kicked out by God and his angels, comes back down to earth, cannot get Israel. So he struck out three strikes on him. Now he's furious. And chapter 12 ends with him standing on the sands of the sea. And chapter 13 opens up with a very unholy baptism. For out of the waters, in chapter 13, I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Now, Jesus went into the waters, and he came out, was anointed with the Spirit, and declared the chosen one by the Father. Here we see the dragon in a fury. He's standing on the shore like he's at a baptismal event. And he calls out of the water, not Jesus, the Son of God, not the Christ, but the beast, the Antichrist, comes up out of the waters. And rather than being filled with the Spirit of God, he's filled with the spirit of hate and division and of, the, of Satan, the dragon. And we see this is a very bad sort of baptism. We celebrate baptism when people get converted. They come and they believe in Jesus, and we baptize them to signify this new life. This is what Israel had done as they were slaves in Egypt. God miraculously comes and delivers them from Egypt. They cross through the Red Sea and come out, and the sea closes on the Egyptians, and they now move forward in newness of life. They are no longer connected to their old life of slavery and the Egyptians, but there's been a clean separation as they now emerge as a new people. God has created a new nation and he brings them forward in his new plan. And then they go, and as they're about to enter into the promised land, there's the Jordan River. And they cross through the Jordan River as the priests carrying the ark step their foot in the water. It says that the waters dried up, just like the Red Sea. And they cross over on dry land into the promised land. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene, Israel is ripe for deliverance. They have been yearning for the Messiah to come for hundreds of years. They've been under the wrong king. Their king is supposed to be the king of kings. And they've been submitting to king after king after king who is not even of their nationality. The Romans are now in charge. John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's this wild, frantic man with crazy, luscious locks and a beard like you've never seen. Hipsters think they have beards. This guy had the ultimate beard and he had locusts encrusted in the beard because of the honey that he would eat and the sun would bake it there and he'd eat the locusts and maybe things were, you know, he was a sight to behold and we're not really sure if people came out to see him or to get baptized by him, but either way they were coming out to the wilderness and there John was calling them for repentance. And what would they do? They would dip into the Jordan river, the river Israel crossed over to represent we're no longer slaves forever. Now we're in the promised land. They come into that river, come out of that river as if to say, we have God failed for hundreds of years to be your true people, to represent you on the earth. We now want to recommit ourselves to representing you in the world. And so they go enter back into Israel, ready to live the way God has meant Israel to live. And somewhere in this great swimming crusade, Jesus comes and gets baptized. 
And Jesus has this moment where the heavens are opened and he hears the Father's voice and the Holy Spirit fills him. Some people, now this is total conjecture. Some people say that Jesus didn't really have a concept of his identity until this moment. Others assume he was born knowing he's God. But either way, this is the pivotal moment when Jesus realizes it's time to start his ministry. And he does so hearing from the father that he is loved and chosen and it's time and being filled with the spirit to do what he was called to do. With that said, in Revelation 13, the beast comes out of the water knowing it's his time. And the dragon, we're told, knows that his time is short and it's time to wreak havoc. So both of these, Christ and Antichrist, come out of the water and do their very different missions. So let's look at the mission of the unholy trinity. So we learned about the dragon. He's accusing the saints in heaven. Chapter 12 says he's thrown out. Chapter 13, we now see the dragon bringing the beast out of the sea. And here's what we see. He has 10 horns and seven heads with 10 diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. This this is very different. You wouldn't imagine Jesus coming out cursing and swearing. (laughs) But here, this quote Christ comes out and he's got blasphemous words upon his head. And more so, he's got diadems and all sorts of things on his head. This is a very egotistic being who's coming up out of the water. I own this place. I'm going to take everything over. Well, You might remember from when we studied this before, we see that he was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's. This is harking back to Old Testament visions in Daniel 7. Representing all the evil of the past is now culminating here in the present. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. The dragon has lost. So now he's going to move his agenda into this Antichrist, this beast, you're going to carry it on for me. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast and they worshiped the dragon for he had given his authority to the beast and they worshiped the beast saying, who is like the beast and who can fight against it? So here we have very much father-son imagery. The dragon's like the father. He gives his authority to the beast. And now the beast is our anti-Christ. So we have our anti-father in the dragon. We have our anti-Christ in the beast. And this, this question is interesting in verse 4. Who can fight against it? This is not what was talked about with Jesus. With Jesus, who can fight against him? It was answered on the cross. Everyone's going to fight against me. And he took the pain and suffering of the world for the world. But the beast is not going to tolerate pain and suffering. He's going to unleash pain and suffering against all opposition. 
So in verse five, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words for it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling. That is those who dwell in heaven. Remember, Jesus is talking about who the father really is. This antichrist is talking about who the father isn't blaspheming him. Uh, verse seven, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. So Jesus didn't launch war on anybody. War was launched on him. Here, this beast is launching war on all who do not side with him. Um, so he's demanding people worship him. Uh, let's go down to verse 11 now and see the third part of the devil's hellish unholy trinity. Verse 11. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. So here this third entity mimics the antichrist and the anti-father. <laughs> it's almost like we have a picture of the unholy spirit now. It exercises all authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth in its, and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. Mortal wound was healed. Remember, Jesus dies and rises from the dead. This antichrist mimics some sort of death and resurrection. This second uh, beast is now pointing everyone to the first beast and saying, hey, all the world, come and see how wonderful he is. And that's what the New Testament tells us the Holy Spirit's doing is he's drawing all men to Jesus. So in verse 13, it performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives. The Holy Spirit gives us truth and enlightens us. But this unholy spirit deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. By the way, it's the Holy Spirit who blows breath into the church on Pentecost. Uh, uh, give breath to the beast, to the image of the beast, that it might speak and it might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both slave and free, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. This call, now, John is intervening here, and he's saying, this calls for wisdom. Listen up. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Six, six. That's not to freak out if your license plate has those numbers on it. That happens. Um, this is a totally, you will know when you take the mark of the beast. It's not going to happen by accident. I mean, of course, you can listen to the message from that last time and do your investigation thing. Uh, tonight, we see the unholy trinity. So we have, in a sense, dragon, father, uh, first beast, antichrist, and Jesus, the son. You have the, the second beast, the prophet, the unholy spirit, comparing with the Holy Spirit. And so we have this real mockery of the Trinity. Now, I say mockery because here's the thing that I was stunned with as I'm looking at this, and I'm going, can 
the dragon, the beast, and his prophet really be three in one? Is that even possible? And it doesn't seem possible at all that an unholy entity can have any sort of unity in that regard. What we see presented are three individuals who have a sort of loose alliance towards a general agenda. The dragon only cares about the beast because the dragon lost and he wants someone to take out his, carry out his plans. The prophet only cares about the beast probably because this is a person who knows that if he can get people to worship the beast, he'll have a prestigious position in this empire. And so here we see politics and religion all being used to promote human interests, selfish, egotistical interests. And so the beast is using political oppression and the prophet is using economic exploitation to get everything going to center around this worship of the beast. And the worship is making all this justified, right? If the beast really is God, and if we can make this image talk and do these signs and wonders, then the political oppression, killing people who are not for us is justified. And, and excluding people who do not have our mark on their body, excluding them from buying or selling anything is justified. They're using this unholy trinity, this religious system to justify political oppression and economic exploitation. And we must be so careful that we, as the church who has the holy trinity, do not imitate the methods of the unholy trinity. And this is what we see in the unholy trinity, is we see the mark of man upon it everywhere. This whole agenda to control people and isolate those who are not like us. You just can't help but see this whole image of the beast. You have to have 666 to be part of the system. I... We do this all the time in our nation, tribalism. If people aren't like us, we don't want them around us. And deep enough in the politics, it really gets messy with this whole who's like us and who's not like us. And we, you know, the church has been far from perfect. Most of our churches are gatherings of similar minded people with a similar skin tone and similar economic gains. Now, granted, our fellowships are usually local, so we have local people at the local fellowships, and local people, more often than not, are in sort of the same sort of affluent or non-affluent area. But nonetheless, we aren't very accepting of people that are of different status, different race, different culture. I don't have anybody in mind when I say this. So if you get uncomfortable, it's the Holy Spirit. (laughs) (laughs) But I know some people would be very uncomfortable if someone full of tattoos was up here teaching the Bible. It's tribalism. My tribe doesn't do tattoos. That's marring the body. And we want, because you don't have our number, whatever that number is, it's obviously not 666 because you guys would never, you know. <laughs> um, but this is, this is the idea. This is the unholy trinity. And when we see ourselves creating systems that promote and justify the exclusion of other human beings or even the oppression of other human beings, we, whether we want to or not, are following the system of Antichrist. 
And we have to realize that baptism, true baptism, brings us out of the waters to create a new way of being human. Israel was commanded not to enslave the foreigner because they were slaves in Egypt as well. Israel was to be the light to the nations. The reason John the Baptist had to come and call them to baptism, which is incredibly humiliating for Jews because it was Gentiles that were baptized when they converted to Judaism. So here are Jews pretending they are pagan Gentiles who can reconvert to their own religion. Uh, but for John the Baptist to call them to do that, it's because they were admitting their error in seeking the nations. They were doing their own little tribalism inside of Israel. We hate the Romans. We hate the Gentiles. So we can't eat pig because that means you'll be like a Roman. You have to be circumcised and people that aren't circumcised have no business being around us and they cannot step foot on the temple mount. Those who do not keep the Sabbath are clearly off the rocker and we can't hang out with them. In fact, Jesus, if you heal people on Sabbath, you're blurring the line between Sabbath keepers and non-Sabbath keepers so we don't like you because you don't have the mark of Sabbath keeping that we've established. This is spirit of antichrist. And if, if this isn't just limited to this future ruler of the world kind of thing that we are all like fascinated with. In 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 17 on, he talks about, now you know Antichrist is coming, but even now there are many Antichrists. The spirit of Antichrist is here. It's leading institutions. Sometimes it's leading churches. It's wherever you see the oppression and exploitation and exclusion of humans. People saying, you're not of our number you can't buy or sell here. So, let's talk about the Trinity then. What's the true Trinity look like? Um, the Trinity is one of those things that is conceptually complex. Yeah? Who of you understands the Trinity? I'll be bold. Raise your hand. You got it down. How one God can be three persons. It is complex conceptually because it seems like a contradiction, but it is transformational in truth. Now, there are two terms in Christian theology. You probably don't know these because you don't read, you probably don't read like heavy theological books. So this is why I'm here. I do that and then I break it down for you. So there are two terms in Christian theology. One is uh, cataphatic and the other is apophatic. Cataphatic refers to theology that gives you definition and clarity and cognitive association. So it says God is like this. God is like that. God is this. And you can fill your mind with knowledge. But apophatic deals with not. It's theology that describes God without specific definitions. And sometimes when you come to the Trinity, cataphatic theology fails. You can kind of give illustrations, but they all break down. What you have to step back toward is apophatic theology, where you say, okay, we know what the Trinity isn't, but it's sort of like this. You're not going to cognitively get it, but the point is to be invited into an experience with the Trinity. So you, this is something you can live and experience, but it's not something that you're necessarily going to say, well, I've got the logic all ironclad, and I'm going to make this very understandable for everybody. So that's cataphatic and apophatic. 
The balance between the two makes sure you can't always be empathetic about everything. <laughs> okay. Empathetic, yeah. <laughs> okay, so here we go. Got my whiteboard, my digital whiteboard. This is so cool. First time I've done this, so hope this works out well. So um, the transformational way to start to understand the Trinity is to understand that God is one. Christians have always affirmed that. And for the record, let's, let's pause for a second. If you who are more scientifically minded and have trouble with God being one yet three, that's a contradiction. Um, you have to understand that the early church, when they began to write about this and describe the Trinity, they weren't dumb. They weren't like, oh, it's a contradiction. Let's just say what we want. They understood this. So it wasn't a problem for them. We have to understand then that there's something we're not experiencing if, if we're seeing it as a contradiction. So I'm going to do my best to show you what the experience of the Trinity is supposed to look like and how different, how radically different this is than the devil's unholy Trinity. And how thankful we can be that the Christian church has a so-called triune God. So here we have one God who exists as three relationships. Important to understand that these are relationships between one another. Okay, God is a being. And to be a being means to be in relationship with someone or something. We talk about God being love. God is love, 1 John chapter 4. Well, you cannot be love if you are all that there is. There has to be relationship in order for there to be love. So in the very beginning, you would have had a love relationship. Father, son, on the screen. So to call God love means there was some sort of a relationship, some sort of exchange between two beings. I'll show you how all this makes them one at the same time, but you got to stay with me here, okay? So we're going to doodle and look at the screen, and this is going to be fun because it's like electronic, and I'm probably going to make some weird, like you already tell, I can't even draw a circle, right? <laughs> so, okay. <laughs> Says the guy who can't see. <laughs> Wow, that you just, you know, thanks. <laughs> They're not as bad as you're imagining, I guarantee it. All right, so it all begins with reciprocal relationship. Reciprocal means that when you give, the other person gives back. That's reciprocal. There's an exchange. A reciprocal relationship is what we see on the cross. When Jesus goes to the cross, he gives of himself, emptying himself, so that there will be room in his being to receive the outsider. That's the goal in the sacrifice of the cross. He empties himself to receive the outsider. That's you, that's me. And in order to make room, see, we are born with like room for the outsider. That's why we call them the outsider. They're outside of us. They don't belong to us. They're the other. And in order to make room for them, something has to be given. And, and, and in that spot, now there's room for the outsider. That's what the cross is. And that's why God gave all of himself through Jesus in the cross so that all of the world could be received. It's beautiful. Well, this was not the first time. This was not like new plan for God. The Trinity has been doing this from the beginning. Father and Son have a reciprocal relationship so that it looks like this. The Father is forever and ever and ever endlessly pouring out himself 
into the Son. And as he gives of himself to the Son in this relationship of love, he's opening space within himself to receive from the Son. And the more that you do this, and as the Son returns the favor, right? The Son is doing the same, giving himself to the Father so that he can receive from the Father. And so that as this reciprocal relationship is happening and they're giving of themselves to receive the other, more and more, son is becoming more and more like father and father is becoming more and more like son. So that what you have at the beginning that looked like two separate beings are now more and more becoming one and the same. The son is becoming the father and the father is becoming the son. Do you see that? But don't think process, because then you're going to start hearing me say the father and the son were at one time distinct and became one. No, we're talking about an eternal flow of relationship so that the father and the son are both one and the same, yet distinct in relationship, a reciprocal relationship. Okay? I hope you're tracking so far. So um, you guys get to watch me tap buttons and stuff. It's kind of fun. So in this reciprocal relationship, as they're giving back and forth, there's an energy, as all relationships have, as a true relationship, you're giving and you're receiving. They're giving, they're receiving. It's a back and forth thing. As all relationships have, an energy is caused in the space between. This space between, we have traditionally called the Holy Spirit. He's the energy pulsating between father and son. The love and the thing and the dynamic and the energy that's happening between the two is the Holy Spirit. So that what the Holy Spirit is in essence is he's the self-emptying of the father and the self-emptying of the son. Which is radical to think of the Holy Spirit as the complete sacrifice of both. That's what makes the Holy Spirit. Now, are you, are you with me? And if it's not cognitively crystal clear, remember, we're looking for experience of the transformational truth that the Trinity is this constant outpouring of love. So keep looking for at least that. Well, this is where it gets extra fun because now we've got to deal with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> so... Likewise, the son is in this endless love and emptying himself into the spirit so that he can receive the spirit in himself. And vice versa, the Holy Spirit's giving of himself to the son and making room to receive the son. And this happy space in between is what you call the father. Oh boy, it's getting blurred. There we go. Father. So that now what we see in the father, what makes the father, the father is the self emptying of the son and the self emptying of the Holy Spirit. And we take this yet one more step. The Holy Spirit is emptying of himself into the father so that he can make room for the father. And then the father's returning the favor by emptying himself into the spirit so that he can receive the spirit in his own self. And so once again, another reciprocal relationship and the space in between is what we call class. Sorry. Thank you. You correct. (laughs) There. The space in between is what we call the sun. Okay. There you go. Wow, isn't that beautiful? 
<laughs> looks, it looked decent on my iPad. It looks worse up there. Oh, so there you have the three who are so self-giving to the other, two giving to the one over and over and in this threefold way that they're self-emptying into each other and receiving each other to the point that three individual beings are no longer individual because the son is emptying himself into the father and the spirit and the spirit and the father are simultaneously emptying themselves into the son. So the son isn't just the son. He is equally son, father, and spirit. And you do that with each of them. And you follow this like mind warping, bending, confusing, constant cycling, circling thing. And you realize, my goodness, what is all that? Well, follow the circles. It's like a maze, right? Just follow them. What you actually have is this dynamic pulsating movement. You have this rhythm, which the ancient church called, the very, very early church called the perichoresis. Perichoresis, Greek for peri means to move around. And choresis means to make space for. So here you have this circular movement, peri, and choresis to make room for. In other words, the self-emptying of self. So that there's this movement, which we now translate today, C.S. Lewis, namely, uh, the divine dance. That each of them are dancing around each other, and there's a constant dynamic energy that's happening. It means that God is not a static being, like the world has understood the concept of God for thousands of years. We have pictures of Zeus who sits on a mountain. He's a static being. It's just Zeus. And Zeus does whatever pleases Zeus. He uses the other gods of the pantheon to do things. And he's at war and conflict with the other gods of the pantheon. Zeus is nothing more than a super egotistic human. And frankly, our presidents and leaders of corporations model themselves on the Zeus model. And our unholy trinity models itself on the Zeus model. We've understood God like this for far too long. Some white-haired, white-beard, old man sitting up in the clouds, grumpy that America's sinning, sending judgment after judgment just to sort of correct people and saying, when you guys all get your act together, then you can come visit me. But this is a truer picture and the mystery of the Trinity and what God is. God is a one. God is one who exists in three relations. These relations are an eternal self-sacrificing, self-emptying into the others. And what we then see is that if that is what defines God, this divine dance of self-emptying and self-sacrifice, then we suddenly see a mind-blowing picture of who God is. That God is a never-ending fountain of constant love, constant grace, constant peace, constant mercy, and it never ends. The cycle has never ceased and it never will cease because they eternally and forever love one another. And the early church also took another step into this and basically said that if each of the components are the self-emptying of the other components, then what creation is, is the self-emptying of the entire trinity. Creation is the result of God self-emptying. Which suddenly changes the way I have thought of God as a child. 
I always thought of, he created us to love him because God wants little humans to become his minions and go everywhere and do his service and to love him and give him honor and respect. And then I read pagan literature and realized, oh my gosh, we've been borrowing from paganism for thousands of years. That's what the pagans said. The humans were here to serve the gods. But this concept of God, this never ending flow of love and grace Suddenly it says, no, the creation wasn't made to love God. The creation was made because there is such a party happening in the Trinity that God wanted to include us in it. He made us not so that we can love him. He made us so that we could be loved by him. And it's the great folly that we go around thinking of God over there, Jesus back in the past, the Holy Spirit somewhere hovering when I do things right. And we miss this eternal, infinite, unending, resilient, relentless flow of love. And what we see in this perichoresis, this divine dance, this party of energetic flowing love, what we see is that it is the nature of God to seek out the deepest possible communion and friendship with every last creature on earth. This constant self-emptying means that he cannot stop himself from seeking the deepest possible communion and friendship with every last creature on earth. Brothers and sisters, as you sit here God's nature is to seek that out with you. This is really good news. And yet, it is the nature of the dragon, his beast, and his prophet to seek out the destruction and manipulation of every last creature on this earth. Does not Revelation 13 say that any clearer? If you're not for us, we're making war against you. Everyone will worship the beast or you will be slaughtered. If you don't take his number on your hand or forehead to show your allegiance to the world and how great we are, you have absolutely no part in our economic system. You're left to be on your own, fend for yourselves. And if we, you better hope that we don't find you because if we do, we might make a public example of what resisting our empire looks like. But the Holy Trinity, we are seeking out the deepest possible communion and friendship with every last creature, even if you kill me. That's the good news of the Trinity. And the best news yet is that we are invited to live in that flow. This isn't some concept spinning around in the heavenlies and we're left to fend on earth until he saves us. Do you understand that if the creation is a byproduct of this self-emptying, then you should see this model in the creation itself? And boy, do you. On the simplest level, look at the water cycle. 
Or think about the intimate friendship you have with a tree. I'm not getting tree hugger on you. (laughs) But think, think about as you breathe in, you're breathing in oxygen gifted to you by the tree. And the tree's breathing in the carbon dioxide gifted by you from your exhale. And it goes back and forth. That's what you see in the Trinity. The water cycle, up and down, the the constant sharing, condensation, precipitation, evaporation. Look at the basic building block of life. Let's get way down to the nitty gritty of creation and look at the atom. This one almost gives you goosebumps. There is proton, neutron, electron. Wow, that's interesting. And you know that the electrons are orbing the nucleus made of the particles, proton, neutron. There's sort of this like vibe, this dance going on there. But you also know that the atom is immensely powerful and full of unfathomable energy. When you split this little dance up, you get what's called the atomic bomb. The energy in this atom is not actually in the electron, proton, and neutron. The energy of the atom exists in the space between those particles. Or in other words, the energy and power of the neutron exists in the relationship between those three particles. And here we have Father, Son, and Spirit in this never-ending eternal relationship of self-emptying and sacrificing and giving and love for one another. That is where the energy lies. And we step into this when we look at what Jesus has done for us, what the Father has done in making the world, the Spirit in drawing us. We step into this energy. And look, brothers and sisters, You are not part of the flow of the divine dance until you not only let that come to you, but let it go through you. Once it begins to come in and go out of you, you are now in that flow. And we step into that dance. We partner in that party. We are part of this flow when, when we empty ourselves to make room for each other in our lives. And that's when we begin to mirror the love of God. And that's when your preaching is more powerful through the way that you mimic the Trinity and emptying yourself for others to receive others than preaching on a street corner with a bullhorn or at a stadium with a microphone could ever be. This is good news that as you sit here tonight You are not being disassociated from God because of your failures, your moral failures, your behavior, your sins tonight. None of that can stop this flow. Do you actually think anything you can do can make the Trinity stop dancing and say, oh, put the brakes on everything. Billy just lied. (laughs) Or take it more seriously. Frankie just left his wife. 
The Trinity's not stopping over that. It keeps moving. What happens to Frankie is he pulls himself out of the dance and of the flow, but it keeps moving. And God keeps seeking out the deepest possible friendship, companionship, and relationship and communion with Frankie ever possible. But Frankie keeps moving out. He keeps moving out. He keeps moving away. And here's the truth with most of us is we see something like this. And this is so scarily unlike anything we see in the world, especially like a world example of a fake Trinity, uh, that that we kind of get scared that God could love us that much. What's going to happen if I get caught up in this flow, this divine dance? Am I going to lose myself? Am I going to, like, we get freaked out by it. And so we hide from it. The hardest thing you can do tonight is to sit in your seat and say, wow, God is better and bigger than I imagined, and to let that flow through you. We prefer instead to think, I'm going to become more godly because I'm going to read an extra chapter of the Bible this week. I'm going to spend an extra 30 minutes in prayer this week. I'm going to make sure I go to one more church service this month. I'm going to make sure I tithe an extra dollar or two. I'm going to walk a young lady across the street. You know, we think in those terms that that's what it means to be more godly, to be closer to God. Remove that works mentality and understand that you cannot make the Trinity's eternal unending flow of love happen anymore. It's been happening forever. You have to let go. You have to open yourself. You have to stop resisting the flow and let it wash over you. Every time I resist God to love me in this way, I'm hurting my neighbor because the flow isn't getting to them. Every time I resist doing what God has equipped me to do in this world, sharing my gifts and talents, I am stopping that flow from reaching the people around me. Every time we say no, every time we resist, every time we say, not me, not today, you are not allowing the Trinitarian love of God to move through you. You are the only person who can stop the unstoppable love of God. We're the only people that can get in the way of this. And church, if we're holding on to some Zeus idea of God, we are depriving our neighbors, our family, our brothers and sisters. So the worship team's coming up. And we're going to take communion with a profound sense of what Jesus has shown us through the cross, that this is the unstoppable love of God. And the only way it can stop from getting to you is if you resist. Let's close our eyes and let's enter into prayer. I want you guys to sense where right now God is tapping, maybe even gently, but you have the door shut.
You're resisting him. And I want you as you take communion tonight to ever so slowly and gently open yourself to him. You're going to be amazed when you do at how exhausting it has been for week after week to resist him. It's exhausting. And there's no greater joy or freedom than to let love wash over and into and through you. And tonight, if you're resisting because you don't feel worthy or you've messed up, you need to stop using that as an excuse to resist God's inescapable love. He doesn't care. He just wants to get his love in and through you. He just wants you to join this eternal party.